Good morning. Giving honor to God, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. I'm glad to be here with you again this morning. Um, Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. The believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the community, to sharing the meals and their prayers. A form a sense of all comes over everyone. God performs many wonders and signs through the apostles. All that believed were united and shared everything. They would sell pieces of property and possessions and distribute the proceedings to everyone who needs them. Every day they met together in the temple and ate in their homes. They shared food with gladness and simplicity. They praised God and demonstrated God's goodness to everyone. The Lord added daily to the community those who believe. Uh, the Lord added daily to the community those who were being saved. Thank you. Thanks, Wayne. <laughs> Morning, everybody. Oak Church East and West. Uh, good to be gathered with you this morning um, here in the parking lot. Um, this is my first time ever preaching in a parking lot. Uh, so I'm going to step into the shade, actually, because I don't want to be sweating too much while I preach. Um, but yeah, it's my first time preaching in a parking lot. Second time preaching at Oak Church. The first time was on Zoom. Now I'm in the parking lot. I'm just inching closer and closer to the sanctuary. So um, hopefully if I do okay today, I'll get invited back again, and then that will be in the sanctuary. I'll have completed the trifecta of Oak Church preaching. And then I think I get a red SUV, Chris. Is that everyone who's done that, that those three has a red SUV? So I don't know. Um, but it's good to be with you today and sharing an awesome passage. Um, Chris said in the newsletter that I had done some academic work around the topic of uh, shared dining in the New Testament. Uh, that is true. He wasn't lying to you. Um, so I'm excited to share today about this passage where eating together is such a central feature. Um, so if I could have some congregation participation, what comes to your mind when you think about the book of Acts? You can just shout it out. You don't have to raise your hand or anything. Church. Great. There's no wrong answers either. What was that? Sharing. Great. You read the notes. Like, it's, it's like the Holy Spirit. Great. Anything else? Fellowship. Awesome. Um, those are all awesome answers. They weren't the answers that I thought you would give, so I prepared something else. <laughs> uh, I thought you might say something like miracles or missions, something like that. It's a lot of the content of the book of Acts. Um, and if you think about the book of Acts as a book of the expansion of the church from Jerusalem to the far reaches of the Mediterranean, you'd be right. Because certainly the book spends a considerable amount of time with the Apostle Paul and some other apostles on their missionary journeys, preaching the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection and establishing Christian communities throughout the Greco-Roman world. And you'd also be right if you think about the book of Acts as a book filled with miracles. Earlier in the same chapter, uh, 
we read about people being filled with the Holy Spirit and being able to speak miraculously in other languages and people also miraculously being able to hear in their own language. And in the very next verse after this passage today, we encounter the story of a man healed from something that prevented him from walking since he was born. Uh, just by Peter saying to him, get up in Jesus' name. It's pretty miraculous. But in between this mighty rushing wind of Pentecost and the miracle stories and missionary journeys of the rest of the book of Acts, we find this collection of six verses that, when read in context, seem a little bit normal, a little bit boring. I mean, we learn from these verses that the church went to the temple, they learned from the apostles, and they took care of each other, right? They basically, they lived normal life. Uh, what's striking is that three times in these six verses, we're told that the church ate together. And we can quickly read past these verses um, and not think much of them because everybody's got to eat, right? Eating is a normal part of life. Of course the church ate together. Everybody's got to eat. But I think that there's something a little more revolutionary and radical going on in these shared meals than we first realize. And to get a better view of just how theologically significant this act of dining together is, I think we have to zoom out a little bit and talk about how meals functioned in Greco-Roman society, so the society that was prominent in the time that the Bible's written, then how Jesus used meals in the Gospel of Luke, and then we can return to why this simple act of dining together was so radical for the church in Acts 2. Um, so shared meals were a big deal in the ancient world. Um, you might share more meals with kind of your social group than your family. Uh, they were a big occasion. And most often these shared meals took place in the context of semi-formally defined groups called associations. Shared meals at associations were structured into two parts. So the first part was the supper. Um, what we might think of as the meal proper. This is where food was served. And this part of the meal was inaugurated by whoever was hosting the meal, taking bread and breaking it and passing it out to the guests so that they could use the bread to pick up the food. Dining utensils weren't really common back then. The second part of the meal was called the symposium. And this was essentially like a crazy drinking party. Uh, all the women and children had to leave the room and the men stuck around and talked about philosophy and politics and public life and all that stuff and got crazy drunk. And this part of the meal was inaugurated by the host taking a cup, raising a glass, making a toast, and then the drinking party began. So this rhythm of breaking bread and passing cup should sound a little bit familiar to us who weekly memorialize Jesus' death and resurrection through these same rhythms, breaking bread and taking cup. Um, the symposium was such a central feature of Greco-Roman society that there was an entire uh, genre of Greek philosophical writing that arose using the symposium as a setting for philosophical dialogue. So like you have like Plato wrote 
a symposium. A uh, philosopher named Plutarch wrote this book called Table Talk. Um, so this part of the meal, this shared meal, was a really common and well-known uh, rhythm of ancient society. Um, these associations formed around uh, shared meals for a variety of reasons. So you might have an association dedicated to local politics. You might have an association of musicians. You might have an association dedicated to a particular local deity, for example. And these associations were so central to public life that you could tell a lot about a person's position in society if you knew what associations they were a part of. And although Jewish shared meals differed slightly from these Greco-Roman associations, the same social dynamics were at play. Your position in society was largely determined by who you dined with and who you avoided dining with. For Jewish people in Jesus' day, social boundaries constructed by dietary laws served not only to separate Gentile from Jew, but to stratify Jewish society as well. Those who took ritual purity and dietary laws more seriously would often form separate communities in order to ensure that everyone they were eating with was just as ritually pure as they were. So in some ways they felt that taking these dietary laws more seriously made them more Jewish and increased their position in society. So enter Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, who's constantly getting in trouble because of who he's eating with. On at least two occasions in Luke's Gospel, uh, we overhear the Pharisees complaining that Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners, right? These are the very people who represent threats to his political autonomy and his ritual purity. There's this interesting theory that the reason the Pharisees cared so much that Jesus was eating with undesirables is that Jesus received his theological training from the Pharisees. So in the eyes of these Pharisees, he was one of them. He was supposed to be committed to maintaining these ritual purity boundaries, supposed to be committed to maintaining a Jewish political identity. But here he was eating with the people who threatened that. Um, so they were shocked that he would throw caution to the wind and dine with people who might threaten that ritual religious purity. But in Luke's gospel, Jesus constantly uses the shared table not as a means of exclusion, but as a means of inclusion and redemption. So my mind immediately goes to Luke 19 and the story of Zacchaeus. We all know this story, right? Because we all sang it growing up in Sunday school. Um, you don't have to right now, but wouldn't be upset if spontaneous uh, Zacchaeus was a wee little man broke out. Um, so Zacchaeus was a man who was despised by his community because he actively sought to benefit from the oppression of his own people at the hands of the Roman Empire. Right? He was a tax collector, so he was financially benefiting from the taxes imposed upon the Jewish people by the Roman Empire. And so Jesus dines with Zacchaeus, and at the end of the meal, affirms for Zacchaeus and all the crowds that are looking on in awe that Jesus would be eating with this terrible person, that this man too is a son of Abraham, that this man too is a valid part of the community. So for Zacchaeus, redemption occurs not at the tree, when Jesus says come down, but at the table, 
where he's recognized and validated as a member of the community when Jesus says, this man too is the son of Abraham. And Jesus' disciples would have been present at these meals. They would have seen the ways that Jesus used the shared table as a tool in his ministry of inclusion and redemption. So at their last meal together, when Jesus breaks the bread and passes the cup and says, remember me when you do these things, it wouldn't be much of a mental stretch for the disciples to remember how Jesus' promise of the coming kingdom of heaven was played out at tables shared with tax collectors and sinners, was played out in this context of radical hospitality. So against this backdrop of Jesus' ministry of inclusion and redemption at the table, the dramatic importance of meals shared by the early church in Acts comes into clear view. The Acts church didn't dine together simply because eating is a necessary part of life. But for them, sharing meals was a sign of the kingdom of heaven coming to earth, just as much as it was a biological necessity. For the church in Acts, dining together was not something secondary to the church. It wasn't something they did after church or in addition to church. Instead, sharing food was the very thing that constituted the life of the church. At the table, they not only recalled Jesus' teaching, his death and resurrection, but also the radical hospitality he practiced in his earthly ministry. They sought to extend that same radical hospitality to all who would come to hear the good news of the kingdom. And lest we romanticize the early church too much, Let's remember that they didn't always get this right. Uh, we don't have to read very far into the New Testament letters or even into the book of Acts to realize that pretty quickly the disciples get tempted to return to their default of using the table more like a wall to keep people out than a gate to welcome people in. One example that stands out is Paul's scalding critique of the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, you might remember the the famous verse 28 uh, when Paul says if you drink of the cup and take the bread without examining yourself you're eating and drinking judgment upon yourself Uh, and I don't know about you but I've heard sermons a lot that use that verse and they say like you better not take communion if you're unrepented of any sin in your life or you're going to get judged you're drinking judgment on yourself when you take communion If we actually read 1 Corinthians 11, we find that the problem is more that some people in the the community were eating and drinking so much that they were gluttonous and drunk, and others in the community were left out and didn't have any food to the point that they were on the verge of death, right? So this was more than a logistical failure of not having enough food, but it was a moral failure, a failure to recognize the humanity of the very people across the table. Um, That's another sermon for another day. What's important to note today is that the fact that Acts takes the time to highlight the shared meals of this new Christian community, it's not just literary filler that we can skip over on our way from Pentecost to the ends of the earth. But it's an acknowledgement that the radical hospitality inaugurated at Jesus' table was continuously being rehearsed as part of the life of the early church. 
So what does this mean for us sitting here in this hot parking lot today, 2,000 years removed from this church that tried to dissolve social boundaries by sharing meals together? I've got to be honest, this was probably the hardest part of the sermon for me to write for a couple of reasons. So first, when I was doing academic work on this topic four years ago, it was really easy to kind of wrap all this up by saying, we're all really busy, we don't eat together anymore, let's just eat together, and then you'll be surprised by what happens, right? Back then, I couldn't imagine a world in which a global pandemic made sharing a meal with other people a high-risk activity, especially if those people were people that you didn't know or they were outside of your normal social group. Um, second, telling this church in particular that dining is important to the life of the church feels like, duh, right? Um, this, it, you all know already that sharing a meal is really important to the life of the church. Um, Chris again said in his newsletter that this, this is one of the things he's missed the most about quarantine is being able to share uh, our normal potluck meals together. Um, but yeah, so, so you all know this. So what do I tell the church that dines together about dining together? You already do it. Uh, so I, I thought it might be a little helpful then to to think about what happens or what can happen theologically when we dine together. What's the theological significance of us sharing meals? Um, I've been reading this book called The Feast of Fools by Harvey Cox. He's a pretty influential theologian from Harvard, and he's also deeply involved in the civil rights movement. He participated in two of the three Selma to Birmingham marches, and he was personally asked by Dr. King to start a Boston chapter of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. So Cox wrote Feast of Fools to address what he saw as a troubling divide between the people he calls world changers and life celebrators. Basically, Cox argues that folks who are intent on changing the world often have a hard time of celebrating life in the moment because they're constantly looking for what's wrong, what needs to be changed. In contrast, the life celebrators are the people who live in the moment. They recognize and celebrate the beauty of the world around them. And Cox argues that not that one of these groups is better than the other, but that the good life comes when we embody both of these characteristics, what he refers to as an interplay between festivity and fantasy. Festivity is marked by a celebration of life, life just as it is right now. Festivity doesn't involve an ignorance of chaos, violence, and injustice, but it's an acknowledgement and an affirmation that even in the midst of the chaos, violence, and injustice of life, life is something worth celebrating. So fantasy, not to be confused with fiction, evokes our imaginations. It causes us to wonder what the world could be how the world might be freed from the chaos, violence, and injustice that makes life so hard to celebrate at times. So as I, I read this book, I couldn't help but think that these two things, festivity and fantasy, life celebrating and world changing, are uniquely bound together in shared meals. When we sit down at the table 
or in our case right now when we stand around the parking lot with our neighbors, we stop for a moment and we acknowledge the dignity and humanity of the person across from us. When we gather around the shared table, we affirm, just like Jesus and the disciples, that you and I are part of the same group, part of the same family. Whatever fences have been put up by the world to divide us from them are torn down at the table where there is only us. And this festive celebration, this practice of festivity at the table, should activate our imaginations and energize us to envision a world in which this celebration of life and acknowledgement of human dignity is the norm. So what if maybe, just maybe, the hospitality and affirmation of life that we experience at the table could be the reality everywhere we went? In Pentecost today, just as in Pentecost 2,000 years ago, we're gathered together at the shared table to experience inclusion, mutuality, and respect, and then we're sent out into the world through the Spirit to other tables to bear witness to that same inclusion, mutuality, and respect that we've experienced at the table with each other. Today marks the beginning of ordinary time in the liturgical calendar. And today we begin the long six-month crawl towards the end of the calendar before we start over again at Advent. Have you seen the calendar represented in quilt form in the godly play classrooms or at the bottom of the weekly Oak Church newsletter? I've referenced that newsletter like three times. It's like definitely a source material for sermons. We do read it, Chris. <laughs> Um, so if, if you've seen the calendar represented in quilt form, either in the classrooms or in the newsletter, this is that long green stretch that's like the right half of, of the quilt. Um, an old mentor of mine used to say of ordinary time that it doesn't represent the church kind of fizzling out and staying quiet between the excitement of Pentecost and Advent. But instead, thinking about being filled with the Spirit at Pentecost pushes us into ordinary time. So that what's ordinary now is life in the Spirit. This term, uh, new normal, has been used a lot over the last year. We might think of ordinary time as a new normal in the life of the church. A time marked by being filled with the Spirit to do ordinary things differently than we did before. And I love that our text for this first week of ordinary time is about the everyday ordinary life of the church. This ordinary life that's now been filled with the Spirit, given new meaning and new context. And what this shows us is that even something as ordinary, as everyday, as necessary to life as gathering around the table it's an opportunity to join in the life-affirming, imagination-inducing, and boundary-wrecking work of the Holy Spirit. Will you pray with me? Loving God, you call us to your table, where you show us grace and mercy and love, and you fill us with your Spirit to take those same things into the world. As we gather around your table this morning, uh, show us again 
your mercy and love. And as we gather around our shared table at lunch, open our eyes to see your spirit at work in our neighbors. In Jesus' name, amen.